This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Well, welcome to Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm your host, Alan Pierce. Today's show is sponsored by Benoit Language Services. And we are going to have a very interesting edition, I hope, of Workers' Comp Matters today. We are going to talk about what is upcoming in the year 2011. And 2011, if any of you are history buffs, might recognize that year as the 100th anniversary of the enactment of state-based workers' compensation laws in the United States. 1911 has been universally recognized as the year in which workers' compensation laws were enacted. Now, there is some controversy and dispute as to who actually was the first or which was the first state to enact workers' compensation, but certainly the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where I practice and where my guests practice and work, was, if not the first, it was a close second in enacting workers' compensation law. In fact, it was on July 28, 1911, that Massachusetts enacted, or at least uh, the law was signed into effect. Joining me today on Workers' Comp Matters are uh, two people that I've known for a number of years, professionally, as well as uh, as colleagues. Uh, the first uh, guest is Administrative Judge Richard Tyrrell of the Massachusetts Department of Industrial Accidents. I've known Judge Tyrrell since he was appointed to the Department of Industrial Accidents as a judge or an administrative judge back in 1989. I've practiced regularly before him. And joining him in the studio with us this afternoon is Attorney Joseph Agnelli. And I've known Joe similarly for well over 20 years. Joe is a practicing workers' compensation attorney. He is a partner in the law firm of the Ketchies uh, Law Group with offices in Boston and in Taunton, Massachusetts. Um, Judge Terrell, back in, I'm going to say the early 90s, Judge. That's, uh, that's right, Mr. P.S. He wrote an article, which I have a copy of. Actually, it's a copy of a copy of a copy uh, for the Boston Bar Journal, and it's entitled The Amazing History of Workers' Compensation. And I thought there was no better place to begin as we look forward to the 100th anniversary of what was then a very novel, controversial, and much-needed uh, change in the law and in the social economic uh, world in the United States, uh, to look at where workers' compensation came from. And uh, those of you who might have a little bit of knowledge might think it may go back uh, to the Industrial Revolution that began in Europe, specifically in Germany. But as you will hear from Judge Tyrrell, it goes back further than that. And uh, Judge, tell us a little bit about your research into the origins of workers' comp and where it took you. Well, first, let me tell you that I, when I came on the uh, came to the department in 1989, I looked and searched for a uh, for a comprehensive history of of uh, compensation, and uh, there just wasn't one around. And that was the genesis of this article. But as far as the genesis of workers' compensation itself, let me tell you that uh, although there's some mention in the uh, in the reference books and in literature of compensation that goes back many many centuries, indeed, the first the first history that one can get a uh, get a solid hold of, as it were, 
goes back about 500 years. And that is that is the history of a group of pretty nefarious uh, individuals. They're uh, cutthroats and pirates is what they were. Literally cutthroats and pirates. Not, uh, not you know, re- referencing any groups today, are you? No, I'm no. not. I'm not indeed. That's, uh, they were indeed the pirates that, uh, that roamed the seven seas and uh, captured uh, ships uh, and uh, stole and raped and pillaged. And, uh, uh, but uh, these folks were rather interesting individuals. They're... Uh, uh, they they came upon a system or devised a system whereby each pirate, each member of the crew would have an equal vote, an equal say in the moments of the day, as they said. And uh, one of the uh, one, for instance, they would uh, they would uh, decide how the booty would be would be split up uh, among the crew. They'd uh, they'd uh, determine what was uh, acceptable conduct on uh, on the ship. Uh, in one case, it was quoted that no one shall game for money, either for, with dice or cards. They were afraid of disagreements on the boat. So they had a pretty um, a rigid structure uh, that guided their behaviors when they were out at sea. They did indeed, and um, one of the one of the more interesting for us, one of the more interesting concepts they came across was that if someone were to be injured, to lose an arm or a leg or an eye that they'd be compensated. For instance, for those who suffered wounds from the loss of a limb, an eye, or even a finger, it says in one of the uh, one of the articles that's quoted here, extra pay above and beyond the their share of the booty, the injured person's share of the booty, would be allotted to them. Now that might come as uh, pieces of eight, might come as slaves, but they'd be compensated in some manner. And of course, those of us who practice, no matter what jurisdiction we're in, most jurisdictions have what are commonly referred to as scheduled benefits for loss of use of a body part, whether it's an eye, a leg, um, or or an arm. And it it appears from your research that this is uh, how the pirates uh, dealt with uh, when one of their... uh, uh, Members of the crew lost. I mean, we we all picture the the, the pirate in our mind of uh, of the hook or the peg leg or the patch over the eye, but that has some certain resonance. They were awarded a certain percentage or a certain defined amount. Is that true? That's very true. In fact, uh, one of the more interesting uh, and verifiable uh, stories or um, pieces of information that I was able to discover discover were was the. Uh, the history of Henry Morgan, who was the scourge, of course, of the Spanish fleet, uh, an Englishman who assembled a fleet, now understand this, 36 fighting ships and almost 2,000 men in uh, in the late 1700s, I think. No, let's see. 16, I think you've got 1671 is six, the uh, reference 1671, point. that's right. And uh, these folks... Uh, got together, the captains of the ship were called together on Morgan's uh, Morgan's uh, flagship, the 22-gun satisfaction, and there they drew up the articles of agreement under which they'd sail, and under those agreements, it was, uh, it was determined that uh, the loss of a leg would be, uh, would be compensated with uh, 600 pieces of gold. 
pieces of eight. Compensation would be paid for a, for a loss of a hand at 600 pieces of eight or 800, 1,800 for both. And uh, these individuals were either to be paid in gold or the equivalent in slaves. You know, it's interesting that um, I think back to our current law where we also have a certain sum for the loss of one hand, a certain sum for the loss of the other hand. Yet, if somebody had the misfortune of suffering both hands uh, to be um, lost in an industrial accident, it would be more than the sum total of each individual, because obviously one is much more disabled with two hands gone than, than one. And it seems that Captain Morgan uh, of the uh, of the rum um, um, fame, fame uh, also had uh, 600 for one hand, 600 for the other, but if both are gone, it's 1,800 or three times uh, the individual. So uh, now Morgan, you, uh, you understand, was a was a, a privateer, uh, an individual who was licensed by the king to go out and, uh, and uh, prey upon the ships of uh, the the enemy. And uh, although he was uh, he was uh, arrested, brought back to England in shame, he was brought back uh, as a hero as a, as he entered the country knighted by the king and sent back to the Caribbean as the lieutenant governor of Jamaica. And as we go through your article, there's a couple of other historical names that might be a little more familiar to our audience, and I'll just refer to them both and have you maybe touch on their influence in workers' compensation development. And they are two uh, less alike individuals that you can probably imagine. The first one I'm going to mention is Chancellor Otto von Bismarck of uh, 19th century Germany. And the second, of course, is Teddy Roosevelt. Tell us how they impacted the development of workers' compensation. Well, the Iron Chancellor of, of Bismarck is a fascinating uh, historical figure, a mighty, uh, a mighty figure in the history of European affairs. He was uh, the 19th century Chancellor of uh, Germany, a unifier of, uh, of that country. And about the same time as uh, the Industrial Revolution was coming into being, and at the time uh, that Germany was unified, it became an industrial leader. It became a world leader in the manufacture of such things as iron, steel, cutlery, and uh, munitions. And with manufacture came injuries and deaths on the job. Many, many. Uh, there wasn't. There was not a lot of concern about the uh, about the welfare of the working man. And with the revolution came the growth of of industrial cities, uh, and along with slums and housing shortages and other social problems. And that brought forth the um, the working class turning to a a um, political party, the Social Democrats, and Bismarck, who was a Staunch aristocrat, a supporter of his king. It was the only thing that was important to him was the preservation of the of the junker class and its privileges and the privileges of the king. So and, did he see a threat in the uprising of these workers who are now filling the cities and many of whom are the uh, their families are the result of industrial injuries that killed or maimed their breadwinners? Well, he did indeed. Looking bit looking. Uh, back not too long, not too far in uh, his, in European history, he saw the revolutions that were uh, that were sweeping through Europe or had swept through Europe, and feared the same for Germany. And uh, on the pretext of uh, finding a pretext, he outlawed the Social Democratic Party. But this is the interesting part: 
As he did so, he also recognized that it would be very beneficial if he eliminated the need for the party in the first place. And therefore, he enacted a number of social reforms in Germany, the first in Europe. And those reforms, among those reforms, was, was the establishment of workers' compensation. And this, was the, this formed the basis of all of the compensation later in England, later in the United States, although they had some differences. They were all based upon the same premise, that workers who were injured on the job need never, never again prove the fault of their employers, that it would be a no-fault system. It would be paid for in different ways in different countries. But nevertheless, it was a no-fault system. Uh, and uh, there would be what historians now call a compensation bargain. Previously, employees who were injured were hampered by three common law defenses brought by or defended by the employers. Assumption of the risk, the fellow servant rule, and contributory negligence. That and any one of those would bar a recovery and leave the person penniless and their families penniless. Absolutely. Now, keeping in mind that Germany's Industrial Revolution preceded the, that which occurred here in the United States by several decades, let's ratchet ahead a to the turn of the 20th century. And I'm looking at some t statistics that you uh, incorporated in your article. Back between 1903 and 1907, just the railroad industry alone was killing 3,500 workers a year. Stunning. And in 1913, some 25,000 Americans died in work-related accidents, and 700,000 were seriously injured. Now, that brings us to Teddy Roosevelt, and it brings us to an article that he wrote called Sarah Kinsley's Arm. Tell us about that article and what that meant. Well, President Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, came across uh, information on on a worker by the name of Sarah Kinsley. And uh, she was injured when her hand, she was a factory worker, and her hand was crushed in a cogwheel uh, on a machine that uh, she brought uh, She brought suit, uh, a legal suit. And uh, that suit was denied on the basis, well, let me say that first that even though uh, she complained to her foreman that the, there wasn't proper guard on the machine as required by law. And even though uh, there was a lack of a safety device, the court refused to honor her tort claim, claiming that uh, since she continued to work, Mrs. Kinsley had assumed the risk of being injured. And that is one of those three defenses, the fellow servant rule and contributory negligence and assumption of the risk, which it, bars recovery. And it barred her recovery. And that's when uh, Teddy Roosevelt got a hold of that story and wrote that article. And that was one of the key factors in New York and the surrounding states, including Massachusetts, starting to recognize the toll that this not only placed on the individual worker, the worker's family, but on society as a whole, because somebody had to take care of these people. The almshouses, the poor houses were filled with these people. And there was one other episode that occurred in, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it, Judge. Also back in 1911, and the 100th anniversary is coming up, is that horrible tragedy that occurred in the Lower East Side, in the garment industry in New York, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And in that fire, dozens of mostly women who were working in what was described to be a sweatshop perished in a highly flammable building. 
and left families, children, husbands without any means of support. And uh, again, that that came right in around the same time that Teddy Roosevelt had uh, had told the story of Sarah Kinsley. And uh, that that was, uh, as you say, about 1911, about the time that the Massachusetts uh, Massachusetts Act came into being. It was a horrible tragedy, and one that is remembered today by uh, by a lot of members of the uh, compensation bar, the tort bar, uh, and labor unions, indeed. And uh, and that's a good segue where we can talk a little bit uh, with Joe Agnelli about how uh, we are going to commemorate in just a few short months. We're really only eight or nine months away from April of 2011 in commemorating not only the origins of the Massachusetts workers' compensation statute, but really uh, workers' compensation in general. And what started out as a small state-based uh, commemoration has, has broadened a bit into more of a national commemoration. And Joe, tell us a little bit about what's being planned here in Massachusetts, uh, but which is open to everybody to come in April of 2011. Thanks, Alan. Yes, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 2011 uh, does um, note the 100th uh, anniversary of the passage by the Mass Legislature of the Workers' Compact. At that time, uh, Chapter 572 of the uh, the Acts of uh, 1911, uh, they um, was passed on July 28th of 1911. It was signed by Governor Foss at that time. Um, we're going to be planning a um, an event in April of 2011. I think it's April 7th that evening. Uh, it's going to be a a, a ga- gathering of um, of obviously state uh, attorneys, uh, mass uh, judges, uh, anybody affiliated with the workers' comp program in Massachusetts. Uh, it's going to be sort of um, held at the same time as the ABA having their annual meeting and workers' compensation meeting in Massachusetts. They've agreed to hold their meeting in Boston uh, that year, uh, and we're going to sort of work with them uh, logistically and synergistically to have uh, events uh, coordinating with their um, meetings. Uh, so we're going to have a symposium that same day of uh, some uh, uh, featured speakers, uh, several uh, people, uh, nationally fa- um, renowned uh, workers' comp attorneys, uh, uh, um, professors, what have you, are going to be attending and being part of that symposium that you and I and other and Debbie Cole are going to be working with and sort of organizing. And uh, we're in the process of getting our speakers lined up, and it'll be just a half-day event. And then that evening, we're going to have more of a uh, sort of a gala event uh, in Boston here at a place to be determined at this point. Uh, so it looks like it's going to be quite an event. It's going to be probably over a three-day stretch, most likely. The Massachusetts portion will be in one day, but we'll be sort of part and parcel of that uh, three-day event as part of the ABA. Yeah, and to expand on that a bit, Joe, and, and for the benefit of Judge Turrell, who's uh, aware of what's going on here in Massachusetts, maybe about a year and a half or two years ago, uh, several groups came together. The Massachusetts Bar Association, the Massachusetts Academy of Trial Attorneys, the Department of Industrial Accidents, uh, and some labor groups and and safety groups, and uh, a planning committee was formed. And uh, as Joe mentioned, uh, the highlight of the event will be the the dinner with a, as yet to be determined, a a keynote speaker. But during that afternoon of April 7th, a symposium uh, headed by Professor John Burton, who is probably recognized as one of the leading academic um, 
experts on not only uh, workers' compensation practice, but the history and development of workers' compensation as a social, economic, and legal system. And he is putting together a, an elite panel of, of uh, academics and, and practitioners to not only look back at the first hundred years, but really to look ahead to the next decade or two and try to understand what the future holds for workers' comp, because this is a system that does not operate in a vacuum. And we have a changing society today with universal health care and a variety of other issues that is now starting to impact workers' compensation. Now, Joe, as part of the planning, uh, you've undertaken uh, to put together a, a book, uh, a history book of, of workers' compensation in Massachusetts and the Department of Industrial Accidents. Tell us a little bit about how that's come about and what we can expect in the next few months. Well, um, as Judge Terrell just mentioned, you know, he, when he went back and looked to see if there were any treatises on the history of workers' compensation, the history of workers' compensation, he found there were none. So he took it upon himself to um, uh, put together what a, gr a great uh, treatise that was published in 1992 and which still remains uh, great reading and hopefully be part of my book as well. The uh, genesis of this was uh, about two and a half years ago when the discussion became um, evolved around planning some type of get together or some type of celebration of the of the uh, centennial of the compact. I had occasion to be speaking to one of the administrative judges at the board who herself had actually put together a fairly extensive treatise on workers' compensation in Mass, and it still remains one of the Bibles on the Mass Practice Series. Um, the idea was sort of formulated that we should try to put together some type of book to celebrate the centennial. And since there had been so much written about the history of workers' comp and the law itself, I thought, why not the personalities involved with the passage of the Act, the people who were involved with the board from day one, uh, and then people have been involved with it since to the present time. Some of the pioneers in workers' compensation talk about the first me the members of the first board, uh, some of the, fir the first female member, the first female chairman, and then just to talk about these people. And because most of the practitioners before the board now sort of started after the, la the big reform in 86 when we knew it as the DIA and the administrative judges, many of us have had the benefit of being around before the change and the way the, the system was handled, the way the cases were handled by the commissioners back then. So today's generation doesn't have the benefit of knowing what went on before then. And unless it's put down in writing soon, those people who were involved uh, with it in the 40s and 50s will no longer be with us and their story can't be told. So I'm having, you know, this this great time basically uh, talking to some of the old timers who are still there, who really were involved uh, since the 40s and 50s and 60s, who were the commissioners and attorneys and on both sides of the, of the bench, uh, who really uh, can tell me some great stories. And I can relay that to the, this generation and coming generations, uh, you know, for the next hundred years if possible. And workers' compensation as a legal practice, something that has... Um put bread on, on my family's table for 30 years and Joe's and, and, and Judge Terrell as being an adjudicator, we owe a lot to the people that came before us. And we're talking not just the generation before us, but almost two generations. And one of the pioneers, and I hate to uh, keep going back to Massachusetts, but this was a national pioneer who, who came from Massachusetts, was the legendary Sam Horowitz. And Sam was a Harvard lawyer with a strong social conscious as consciousness. And back in the 30s and 40s, he really elevated the practice of workers' comp on behalf of the injured worker. Keeping in mind, insurance companies, employers had 
very well-paid and talented lawyers, but to get somebody to take up the cause of the injured worker wasn't quite so popular. Tell us a little bit what you've learned about Sam. Well, um, much of this came through my interview with his son, Paul, who is now living in the Virgin Islands, and I was fortunate enough to contact uh, Paul through your efforts as well. And Paul uh, took the time one afternoon to speak to me at length about his dad, his recollections of his dad. Uh, and basically, as you say, Alan, he's a, actually a 1922 grad of Harvard Law School. Um, basically, his first job was an insurance adjuster for the old U.S. casualty company. So he started off in the insurance industry, and after spending a few years there, was not happy with it. So he decided he wanted to represent injured workers who didn't have great representation in the early days. And they had attorneys, but really it was kind of pretty one-sided at times. Uh, so he uh, basically volunteered as a workers' comp attorney for the Boston Legal Aid Society uh, in the mid late 20s and basically was handling hundreds of cases before the board back then, uh, basically on a pro bono basis. Uh, he eventually, as you mentioned, Alan, uh, in the early 40s, uh, sort of, as we say, kind of crashed the party of the IABC, which, as you recall, up until then was pretty much a conglomerate of um, employer and insurance attorneys and commissioners throughout the country. So, again, the uh, injured worker didn't have much of a, a spokesperson involved in the IABC. All right, we're going to take a break right here, and we're going to continue with the story of Sam Horvitz and the development of the practice of workers' compensation after this brief break. Need to communicate with your non-English speaking clients? Call Benoit Language Services. We have interpreters and translators throughout the USA, so you are able to converse quickly and effectively with your clients. We cover all legal matters, medical appointments, and statements. We offer telephone interpretations, written translations, and handle all proceedings at the Department of Industrial Accidents. Benoit Language Services, dedicated to the art of communication. Call us for a free quote at 1-800-261-5152 or visit BenoitInc.com. That's B-E-N-O-I-T-I-N-C.com. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. I am speaking with Judge Richard Terrell and Attorney Joseph Agnelli about the 100th anniversary of workers' compensation. And Joe was starting to tell us the story of Sam Horovitz and going to Portland, Oregon for the International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions meeting, where he and six other attorneys from around the country decided to organize to gather some uh, ammunition so that there could be a equal representation or equal playing field for injured workers before the administrative tribunals, which, as Joe mentioned, was heavily dominated by industry and not so much dominated by injured workers of the labor movement. So, Joe, tell us just in a, a few moments what, what occurred and what, what transpired from that. 
Well, as you mentioned, in Portland, Oregon, at the old Heathman Hotel, Sam and uh, 10 other uh, attorneys who were in attendance at the IABC um, convention uh, decided to get together, and they met in Sam's small uh, hotel room with his two young, young children and his wife in attendance in the back room, back of the room. And essentially, Sam's uh, vision was basically to, to get out there and organize a group of compensation claimant attorneys, which became NACA and ACCA. And that stands for? The National Association of Compensation Claimants Attorneys. And basically, that was the genesis was in that hotel room in Portland, Oregon in 1946. Uh, Sam became the executive secretary of, the, of, the, of that organization. And as time went on, and uh, the story will be told more in my book, And uh, but he would basically went out for, took a whole year off of his practice and toured the South, the West, and pulling a small uh, silver trailer behind his uh, station wagon with his two young children in tow, and basically trying to recruit at least two compensation attorneys from each of the 50 or 48 states at the time to come in and be part of that group, which ultimately grew into the NACA and eventually became ATLA and now the AAJ. So really the AAJ had its genesis with Sam Horowitz and these 10 other attorneys from around the country at this meeting in 1946. And for many years, the NACA Journal was uh, well known as not only uh, a law review of workers' compensation law, but also tort law. And Judge, you were telling us before we started that in the library of the Department of Industrial Accidents, you say there are some bound volumes of the NACA Journal? There are. There's quite a few. And uh, as you indicated, it's pretty interesting reading. Well, as we are looking forward to April of 2011, I do want to mention that this idea not only may have originated in Massachusetts, but seems to have caught the uh, eye of other states. Wisconsin, which I think battles Massachusetts in the uh, rights to claim, uh, which is the first state, I understand is also uh, preparing its own centennial celebration. Ironically enough, the IABC is the moving force in, in Wisconsin. I believe um, Illinois is planning a similar event, and I understand that in March of 2011, there will be a 100th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire uh, at the actual location on the Lower East Side in New York. So we have a lot to look forward to in the upcoming year, uh, both here in Massachusetts and around the country. And I've also uh, been told that uh, Public Broadcasting Service, the PBS, is going to air a one-hour special documentary on the history of 100 years of workers' compensation. That will be aired on Labor Day in 2011, appropriately enough. So having said that, Judge Terrell, any last words on, on our mission, your, your mission as an administrative judge who has an interest in the history of workers' comp? Well, you know, I, I, we had a brief conversation before the uh, before we went on the air, Mr. Pierce, and I told you I, I wrote this article because I thought it was important to to uh, to fix where we are in time and and history, and uh, I've uh, during that conversation with you and Mr. Agnelli this morning, I found out exactly how much I don't know and how much is left unsaid about the history of workers' compensation, both here in Massachusetts and uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And what actually a fascinating, fascinating subject it is and I look forward to uh, to reading Mr. Agnelli's book and finding finding out more about the uh, the various characters and individuals that were uh, that were involved in this and there certainly were characters Joe any last words before no, we sign again off? I would just say this has been really uh, you know a great uh, uh, task. I mean, it's a lot of work, but I enjoy doing because uh, you know I really enjoy doing workers' compensation for thirty years now, and 
I'm a big history buff, so putting these two together has just been a great labor for me. And uh, talking to these uh, individuals, I call them the living legends, really, that are still out there and still willing to tell me their story, it's, fan- it's, it's fascinating. And then to be able to recount it to this generation and coming generations is really just wor- worth all the effort. And if anybody in our listening audience... Uh, would like a copy of Judge Terrell's article, you could contact me through the Legal Talk Network here at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Or you could contact me by email. It's apierce at alanspierce.com. And if you have any interests in joining us in Massachusetts in April 2011, please feel free to contact Joe Agnelli or me or any member of the committee. And in the meantime, Uh, I want to thank our guests this afternoon for being here, Judge Richard Terrell of the Department of Industrial Accidents, Attorney Joe Agnelli from the Ketchies Law Group. And on behalf of Workers' Comp Matters, this is Alan Pierce saying, go out there and make it a day that matters. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.